0: The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, that just as he was active in the early church, so he is the head of this church as well. Thank you for gifting each believer for the use of their gifts for your glory. Lord, we, we expect that you are present here this morning. That you are working on us through this time of worship. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. Would you open our eyes to its truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we should have some Bibles on the table and back. Feel free to grab one of those. Uh, If you need a Bible, feel, feel free to take one of those. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Okay, do you, you read this and and think, okay, now, now, unfortunately, this is sounding a little more like the the church experience that people expect instead of the unusual descriptions of of people selling their stuff in order to meet the needs of others instead of opening their homes, and all of the descriptions of of glad and generous hearts instead of one heart and one soul sharing and sacrifice, of rejoicing that they be counted worthy to suffer the dishonor for the name of Christ. Now we're getting to the part in Acts where We see a little typical conflict. Do you read this and think, the honeymoon's over. Now things are getting real. Sadly, we expect these kinds of conflicts. And I suppose if we expect them, if this is our attitude about the church, we'll probably live up to or down to these low expectations. Instead, we should remember, God is one. And we have the Holy Spirit. So in light of this, shouldn't we expect unity? Oh, Pastor Brian, don't be so naive. Yes, it would be naive to think that we'll never have disagreements, that there will never be hurt feelings and divisions. But it's not naive to expect True Christians and dwelt by the Holy Spirit to respond in a godly way when those conflicts arise. And a part of my responsibility in preaching God's word to you is to encourage a right view of the church. I want us to have a right view of what the church is. And this begins with a right view of God and what He intends. Or maybe. Even more amazing, what did Jesus pray for us? Remember his high priestly prayer in John 17? should we expect of anyone's prayers to be answered? Jesus' prayer is going to be answered? Think of it. In the shadow of the cross, here's what Jesus prayed. Father, I do not ask for these apostles only, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What is a right view of God? Is God divided? No. God is one. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is love. He is perfectly one within himself, and we exist for his glory. The Son did not grumble about being the one who was sent by the Father to take on human flesh, to suffer and die. The Holy Spirit wasn't jealous that Jesus was getting all the attention. No, God is perfectly one. And so Jesus prayed, Father, just as we are perfectly one perfectly united in love and purpose, bring about unity in my apostles and in those who believe in me through their preaching. Of all the things that Jesus might have prayed, he prays for the unity of his church. And this unity goes way beyond desire for things to go well for us. The unity, it's a reflection, it's The way in which we glorify the perfect unity of the Godhead. When people look at us, instead of saying, Ah, what a bunch of hypocrites. They're always fighting over something. Instead of this, people should see a oneness that says something about God. We say it all the time that that we exist for the glory of God, but we need to apply this to the church. We think of that in individual terms, but we need to think of it corporately. It's not just an individual witness. It's the witness of Christ's body, the church. So if we care about the gospel, if we care about people's eternal souls, then we must be a part of Christ's church because he said that this is... This is corporate unity. That this corporate unity is the way that people know him as Savior. If you think your relationship with Jesus is just a personal thing that you can do on your own, if you think it's okay for you to distance yourself from a community of believers, the body of Christ, and be good with God around a campfire by yourself, then you're not reading your Bible. Not at all. You don't rightly know what Jesus wants. What he expects from you, from us. This is our witness to the world. They should look at us and say, yeah, they have disagreements, just like us. But wow, look at how they work it through. Look at how their love, how they love one another, how they forgive one another. How they're able to, how are they able to do this? It's the body of Christ. It's what Jesus prayed that we would do. And he sent us the Holy Spirit to help us. And he's given us his word and prayer. Remember that Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 is for you. It's not just for his apostles. No, he prays for all who believe in him through their word, through the word of the apostles, which is our New Testaments, the word that declares the gospel and reveals the only Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't pray for our education. It wasn't for financial support. He didn't pray for a long life of happiness for us, even a good marriage, or, or that we would be good parents and wisdom with that. It wasn't even for these widows to be properly cared for. No, the priority of Jesus' prayer was that we would have the kind of oneness that comes from God. That we would love one another for the sake of God's glory. I can't emphasize enough how important it is for us to love one another, to be united and not divided. And because we continue to struggle with sin, it requires right expectations of godliness. Imitating Jesus. Humbly serving one another. Seeking forgiveness and understanding. Bearing with one another when things can't be resolved. We see this emphasis over and over and over again in our New Testaments. That there be no divisions among you. That we be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. To be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. To let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So with all this said, What would you imagine Satan's strategy to be? What do you think he desires? Satan is real. Scripture describes him as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He hates the church. And so far, what have we seen in Acts? We've seen two kinds of attacks by Satan. We've seen growing persecution... The religious leaders threatening the early disciples, imprisoning the apostles, beating them, wanting to kill them. And this attack of Satan continues to this day. Martyrs of the faith throughout church history. People, because of their identification with Christ, to this day being killed in various parts of the world. And in chapter 5 we saw... Another strategy of Satan. We saw him filling the hearts of Ananias and his wife Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit. Even in the good deed of selling their property and and giving toward a need, there was hypocrisy. They lied about the amount in order to gain the praise of people. So Satan was at work outwardly and inwardly. He wants to destroy Christ's church. And now in chapter 6, there's another attack, grumbling, murmuring, that should remind us of the days of Moses. In the ESV translation of the Bible, the word is complaint. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. And really, the complaint was against the leadership, against the apostles, for how things were not being handled. The word complaint is also translated as grumbling and muttering. It's the same word in the Septuagint, that is the the Old Testament translated into Greek. It's the same word in the Septuagint that describes the murmuring of the Israelites toward another leadership. Moses, grumbling about the food, muttering about living in these desert conditions. Grumbling about his leadership. Here's the situation in Acts. The Hellenists. Who are the Hellenists? Well, Hellenists were the Diaspora Jews. Born and raised outside of Israel. Diaspora meaning dispersed or scattered. So as a result of the conquest of of Assyria, and then Babylon. Jews were, they were scattered throughout various parts of the Middle East. And by this time, their language, their culture was primarily Greek. They were still Jews. They had their synagogue and their copies of the scripture, which would have been the Septuagint in Greek. Okay, but then there's these Hebrews. Then there were... Jews living, the Hebrews were the Jews living in Jerusalem. The Hebrews, um, they would have gone to synagogue, the liturgy would have been in Hebrew and then the message afterwards probably would have been in Aramaic, their common language. So think, now think of Pentecost. Pentecost is the celebration uh, uh the Diaspora Jews from, from all over, they're going to come for this, this gathering, this celebration, along with the Hebrew Jews who lived in Jerusalem. And these scattered Jews coming from, from different cultures, knowing different languages. Greek would still be a common language, but they're familiar with different languages. They heard the gospel in their native tongues we think of you know Jews and gentiles coming together but initially it's it's Jews different kinds of Jews coming together and then those scattered Jews going back to their many of them going back to their cultures sharing the good news and gentiles being converted okay that's that's what we see at Pentecost so thousands are saved and many of these these uh Scattered Jews, they decide to stay. And this is why there's such a a huge financial burden. This is why we see the the locals selling their properties to meet the the financial needs. Because of this great burden of those who stay, these outsiders who who are brothers and sisters in Christ now, who converted along with them. They're excited. They don't want to go. But they don't have work. They don't have a way to get work. And they stay anyway. and That's that's why there was this financial burden. And among them are their widows who relied upon God's people to care for them. So that's the situation. This early church is a gathering of Hellenists and Hebrews. Different languages, though everyone probably knew Greek and they could communicate. So I don't think it was so much... Some think it was a language division... um, I don't think it was that, so much a language barrier, as much as a cultural barrier. Maybe even an ethnic divide. The division that we see here is a result of these, these cultural differences coming together as one church. You can imagine that. We don't deal with it too much here in the Rogue Valley, but you think of churches with different cultures and a mix of cultures. Maybe different languages and the difficulties that would involve. That's what they're dealing with. So along with that, maybe there's some cultural suspicions, prejudices. Um, or maybe there's a more innocent explanation here. I heard someone suggest this. I don't know if it's the case, but okay. think of this. Think of, think of the Hebrew Jews living in Jerusalem... Caring for their widows, as they, they always would have done, uh, it's a regular part of their culture. The Old Testament has a lot to say about caring for widows. And so in their culture, money would, was regularly co- collected. This was already going on. This is their history. And it, and it was then distributed by the temple authorities. Okay, But now they've, they've converted to Christianity. They still think of themselves as Jews. They're still calling themselves Jews. They don't go by the name Christian yet. Their their conversion creates this conflict with the temple authorities. And so they probably began to gather their own funds instead of contributing to the temple. They probably started gathering their own funds, recognizing this conflict so that they can distribute to their own. I'm speaking of the Hebrew Jews now. So it was a normal part of their life. They functioned as they always had. And it would have been been really easy for them to assume, to think that the Hellenist Jews were in the same situation. They were collecting their own as well. So maybe it's just a misunderstanding. Maybe they assumed that, you know, like us, we've got to do something different. You know, the temple authorities aren't, there's a problem here, so we better take care of our own. And these Hellenists, they, they likely had the same kind of tradition, so they're probably doing this, the same thing. So that's one. Um, I say all that to point out the importance of... Um, we should assume the best in each other, shouldn't we? There might be a, a reasonable explanation that maybe a little humble communication about a misunderstanding can be solved in a reasonable way. I don't know if this was really the case, or if, or if maybe there was preferential treatment going on. Maybe there was this, this ethnic issue, this divide. But really, on a spiritual level, we would say it's the strategy of Satan. He wants to divide what God desires to be one. So what's the solution? Or maybe let's think of it this way. Um, we see what they did. What, what might they have done? What could have been some of the solutions that, that they, they could have come to? Well, they could have just said, let's kick the complainers out. Just kick them out. Aren't you supposed to be giving to? Why is the financial burden landing on us? Get a job. Contribute. Maybe then we'll have enough money to take care of everyone. Just, okay, so they could have just kicked out the complainers, or they could... They could start a new church, uh, the Hebrew Christian Church, and the First Church of the Hellenists. Just do your own thing. Another bad solution would have been, "Hey, let's do two services. Um, have you know have the appearance of unity, but function apart." Maybe a a, a traditional Hebrew-style service, and then maybe a little more contemporary Hellenistic one. Um, After all, isn't this the answer to so many churches today? We like hymns. Oh, come on, get out of the Dark Ages. There are good contemporary songs to sing. I know. How How about you get what you want? I get what I want. Let's just have two different services because we're both too selfish to worship together. As you can tell, I'm not a fan of traditional and contemporary services. It makes me cringe. <sighs> That's not oneness. I'll never forget the example of Bob Rickabaugh. Some of you remember Bob. Years ago, he, um, he moved to the valley to actually take care of his son. Bob was 90, in his 90s came to take care of his son, instead of the other way around. And Bob did many things in life. He was a contractor. He was a pastor. um, He was a golf course superintendent. He did a lot of things. So being in his 90s and and pastoring in a church, you'd think that Bob would be pretty set in his ways. And he was. He was set in his ways. In, In many good things, he had his good routine. So when Bob when Bob first started coming to BCC he typically showed up late, which was not at all a part of his character. But he did this because his preference was traditional hymns and we had guitars. So instead of enduring uh, what he didn't prefer. He just came after the music was over and listened to the preaching. Now, I don't know how many weeks or months it was, but at some point, this man in his 90s, who we just loved and admired him. He had so much of God's word memorized. So you couldn't have a conversation without with him without him quoting scripture in King James, of course, Um, This elderly, very godly man, after some weeks, actually came to me and confessed that the Lord convicted him about his attitude. That he was a part of this church. And that it was wrong for him to let his personal preferences get in the way of worship and fellowshipping with the body. He's in his 90s. Showing such godliness and humility. And from then on, Bob came early. He sat in the front row. And he sang loudly, joyfully, enthusiastically. You would never have known that there was a struggle. That's godliness. That's preferring the needs of others and seeking unity and joy. So I'm not a fan of separate Services based on styles and preferences. Because it just isn't unity. It's not the unity that God intends. Don't ever think that we'll ever do that. Okay, how about a fourth bad example? They could have just shunned them. Uh, Sometimes people, you know, they'll stay. And instead of seeking peace, instead of trying to work things out, they just coexist in tension and at best, ignore the other group, and at worst, ignore and gossip about the other group, which creates greater division and hurt. So these are some bad things that could have happened. Um, and thankfully, the apostles didn't do any of these things. Instead, they actually went to the congregation, and some think that they specifically went to the people who were who were bringing the complaint, the Greek-speaking Hellenists, because what do we notice about the seven men who were chosen? What we notice is all of their names are Greek. What a brilliant, humble solution to involve those who were hurt and encourage them to choose people that they believed would be fair. And what I love about this is that the apostles They didn't seem to be defensive. It appears that they recognized the problem and they they just wanted to solve it. And if they brought this problem not just just to the, the, the Hellenists but to the entire congregation, what does that say as well since the choice of these seven men, they're all Greek? What does that say about the congregation and their understanding and grace? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful to see God's people working out a problem. And when we, when we look at this, we see a few principles that I want to uh, keep in mind, that I want to offer to you. First principle that we see is a division of responsibility. There are many needs within a church, and there are different gifts that God gives to each of his children. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Did you hear what that's saying? If you're a Christian then god has gifted you with at least one gift at least one probably men but at least one he's gifted you to be involved to bless others within the church our western way of doing things we're just we're used to being an audience to passively Sitting, listening, doing nothing, leaving. That's, that's not the goal. That's not what God has in mind. And it it doesn't, doesn't it make sense that the use of your gift will not only bless others, but it's going to give you a sense of purpose. Satis- there's satisfaction in, in using the gift that God has given How frustrating to have a gift and not use it. This is God's design. We're a body made up of various parts and each has a function. And the entire body benefits by the use of your gift. Yeah, but I'm not not as good as so and so. And out of pride, you deprive the rest of the body from what God has given you. Is God not sovereign over this church? and the people who are a part of it, and the gifts that they have, God gave you at least one gift, and he intends for you to use it. The complaint came to the apostles, but the apostles knew, they knew their calling, they knew their purpose, their gifting, and thankfully they didn't take it on themselves, but divided the responsibility to others. Caring for the widows was incredibly important. And we should hear the response of the apostles, or or we should not hear the response of the apostles as something like, well, that's beneath me, serving tables. I have more important things to do. That's not their attitude. They just knew their calling. I don't think it's their, their attitude at all. Jesus called them to preach the gospel, and it would have been a disaster if they if they were control freaks who just had to do everything themselves. Preaching, preaching is a priority for the church. It always must be. Jesus said, for what will a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There is a priority, and yet both of these things are important. All of these things are important. And this is why we need a division of responsibilities. I, you know, I am so thankful for our deacons who, who serve and minister in so many practical ways, even recently um, um, bringing gifts to our widows, letting them know that we love them and are thinking of them. I'm so thankful for our deacons and elders and, and each of you that use your gifts helping with the care of our children the music ministry, details of administration and finance. And I realize I, I I always hear these stories of of these horror stories of being a pastor. And I realize how blessed I am because um, you hear these stories of of the burden that so many pastors feel and they burn out and they leave the ministry because everything's on their shoulders. But we, we have such a good team of elders and deacons who are gifted in areas that I just am not. And it's such a good teamwork that we have. So good to work together. So one principle that we see in our text is a is a right division of responsibilities. And another is a plurality of leadership. The particular need in Acts requires a lot of wisdom, a lot of discernment in order to to solve this problem and to avoid division within the church. And having this group of seven creates a great balance. Not just one guy in charge who could be accused of wrong motives, but seven, accountability, wisdom, shared. The two church offices that are mentioned in our New Testaments are deacons and elders, and with each, the appointment is never mentioned in a singular sense, but in plurality. Something that Pastor Dale believed and taught from the beginning of this church is the importance of a plurality of the elders in leading God's church. Now, believe it or not, Pastor Dale... With his big personality, didn't act like the CEO. People assumed that. They get questions every once in a while where people just assume that that because he's so charismatic that, that he just got everything that he wanted. That he was the CEO, kind of Moses-style leadership. Um, but he considered himself, you know, pastor and elder are, are synonyms. So he considered him, himself just another elder. And the elders, you know, believe it or not, we said no to him sometimes. And that's healthy, and he recognized that. Praise God, he knew and wanted and submitted to a biblical form of church leadership, a plurality of elders. And this same principle applies with our deacons. And this deacon-like group acts a plurality that leads to accountability, shared wisdom, Godly cooperation in meeting a need. A third principle for sound church leadership is the recognition of spirit. There, there are spiritual qualifications. There should be, right? We see it um, concerning specifically with deacons and elders, spiritual qualifications for them. So should never be chosen because they're the popular person in the group or, or big in the community spiritual qualifications. The apostles, they didn't come to the people and say, we have a need involving the distribution of food, so go ahead and pick seven men who, they should be in the food service. They should be businessmen. They should, they should have some resources in case we um, uh, run short on supplies. Now, if this were any typical organization, those would be Those would be good ways. They'd be good qualifications to consider. But since this is God's church, they said, Pick seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And what this tells us is that the apostles understood the real problem that was going on here. It really wasn't just a financial problem or a lack of food. It was a spiritual problem an attack from the enemy who wants division and so they needed some spirit-filled men with godly wisdom it seems there are many lessons to learn uh, from this text the importance of unity leaders caring enough about unity that they'd humbly listen to the concerns of and complaints of the people involving people in the process knowing your calling appreciating and encouraging the use of people's different gifts and roles so that you can be more effective in God's, what God has called you to do. All of these things are important, but, but here's a question. Why did, the, why did the apostles ask, what was the real reason? What was the real reason that the apostles asked them to pick these seven men? Let's do a multiple choice quiz. Ready? Okay. Was it A, to keep the people from complaining, B, to make sure the widows didn't starve, Uh, C, to maintain unity within the church, D, so they wouldn't have to do it themselves, or F, all of the above? I vote F. Okay, D sounds terrible, doesn't it? But look at verse 2. They said, It is not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve table. They said that. It would not be right for us to do it. So as terrible as D sounds, that, that if we're going to pick one, that's it. But all were involved. All of these things are true, but actually... Um, it would be wrong for them to do it. And this isn't because it's beneath them or that the concern wasn't important. No, it was because they knew their calling. And the preaching of God's Word is and always should be primary for God's church. A A church might have great programs and be active in the community and help to meet the needs of people. It might encourage the arts. Or be a voice of justice in a corrupt society. But if it neglects the right preaching of God's word. Then it's just another club. Bringing about temporary and not eternal good. No, it's it's not that serving tables was beneath them. They of all people would remember they would remember Jesus stripping down to a loincloth, wrapping a towel around his waist, pouring water into a basin and washing their stinky feet, doing what even was beneath most servants. I'm sure they remember him saying, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Jesus they knew. This is the Jesus they preached. This is the Lord we're called to imitate. And if he being God the Son, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, then how could we not respond in like manner? No, the apostles, they knew their calling. And it's important for each of us To know ours. Acts. Acts is a challenging book. A beautiful example of what we. Ought to look like. As Christ's church. Let's pray together. Oh father make us humble. Give us a vision for our lives. As a part of Christ's church. To not be so individual in our thinking but to lord to see our part in your church as important as a witness to the world challenge lord challenge each of us to connect and use the gifts that you've given us and to have right expectations of each other lord guard us from division and when there are issues help us to react in godly wisdom and with a desire for a a unity that will cause those looking on to see something weird, special, different. A witness to you. A witness to you, our God, who is perfectly one. Thank you for calling us into a body, this body. Help us to glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.